Multiplication. Three. Uh-huh. Starting in verse 14 through 22. So I'll give you all a second to get there. Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. All right. So, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, happy Palm Sunday, everybody. Uh, I know we've mentioned it a few times, but I simply want to mention it again uh, that today uh, marks the beginning of what Mel said is one of the greatest weeks uh, in our year. Uh, for me, this is a highlight of the year uh, because it is, it is a week that has been historically celebrated in the church as Holy Week. And so what we commemorate today is the day that Jesus rode in humbly into Jerusalem on a donkey or on a colt. Um, and a crowd of people began uh, uh, waving and laying palm branches down in the path, uh, exclaiming, Hosanna! And Hosanna means save us. It's an exclamation, save us. And as, as they're exclaiming that, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this is a week that's been set aside to remember and celebrate uh, that Jesus is the one who came, he lived, he died, and he resurrected. Thank you. <laughs> and so we're, what we're going to do is we're going to start this week uh, with Palm Sunday, and then uh, we will end this week uh, next Sunday on Easter Sunday. Yes. Now, let me say something about uh, Easter Sunday, and just some quick instructions. Next Sunday uh, is one of two Sundays in the year where people who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, who don't believe in Jesus, are more likely to come to church. Mm -hmm. The second one being Christmas. Okay. And so I just want to encourage you, invite someone, tell someone, uh, because they are likely to say yes, because they uh, traditionally, particularly even here in the city of Dallas, it's a, it's a known Sunday. I'm going to go be with my family. We're going to go to church. I may not believe in Jesus. I may be the most wretched sinner of them all. Uh, lightning may strike me whenever I walk in. These are the things that you hear them say. Uh, but at the end of the day, I just really want to encourage you uh, to invite them because what we're going to be doing Ooh, next Sunday, well, 
is that we're going to be focused on focused in on Revelation chapters four and five. And what we're going to be doing is that we're going to be looking to the lamb and we're going to look to the lamb in worship through the word. And we're going to participate in communion together. And then afterward, uh, we are planning just an, an amazing special meal uh, that's inspired by, is not, but is inspired by uh, a Seder. We call it a modern adaptation to the Seder. And so uh, on the menu, one of the things is, is instead of a leg of lamb, we're going to have a smoked brisket. Okay. And so it's, it's also going to be an opportunity for our kids just to have some fun outside uh, with an Easter egg hunt. And then, and then we're going to just celebrate Jesus, the King who was dead, but is alive. So step out, invite someone, be here. You don't want to miss it. Okay. All right. So with that said, Ecclesia City is a gathered people in the city for the renewal of all things. And we live Uh, in a common narrative, which is the kingdom has come. Thank you. And we hold to a Romans 12 ethic that is summarized by three main features that we see uh, the followers of Jesus being uh, uh, living, sorry, living a life that is a living sacrifice centered around abiding, serving and remembering. And so one of the things that we say is that we serve with sincere love. We abide with zealous devotion and we remember with humble peacemaking. And we believe that these values powerfully orient our minds and hearts into people of love for God and not just for God, but also for neighbor. Okay. And so in this season, what we have done is that we have joined in with church history's Lenten season, where we participate in uh, 40 days of prayer and fasting. And these 40 days draw their inspiration from the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert. The gospels show us that Jesus was led of the spirit to be tempted by the devil after his baptism. And for 40 days, he prayed and he fasted. And what he did during that time is that he resisted Satan's temptations and then went to Galilee to begin his public ministry. And so in the season, the practices of prayer, fasting and sacrificial giving serve to help increase our reliance on and devotion to Jesus. And so what this has been has been an intentional time to empty ourselves from distractions of overindulgences of possessions, forgetfulness and food to open up ourselves to be filled with more of God. And as we're filled with more of him during Lent, I believe and I and I hope that you've experienced this during this time. Our relationship with him deepens and gives meaning to our fasting and it strengthens our call to sacrificially give what the Lord has given us. And so just a quick recap. Together, we've repented of sin. We've fasted from something that we have typically indulged in. And we've contended for the renewal of our hearts. And we've done this both as individuals and as a community. Now, we're almost at the end of our 40 days. Wow. I'm excited about that. Uh, I want to, and so here's what I'm going to say. I want to implore you, challenge you, exhort you, motivate you, and love you into participation. Now, here's how we're going to participate. When we started on this journey, I want to remind you that I said that there is no magic in fasting. 
cutting out food isn't a, a, a genie lamp that you can just rub the right way and get three wishes from God. That's right. Fasting is a physical response to tell our mind, heart, soul, and strength that we are in need of something greater than food and, and that we're hungry for more of God. And so what we've done is that we fasted in week one from alcohol and soda. In week two, we fasted from sweets. In week three, we fasted, we fasted one meal in the week. Week four, we fasted one meal per day. Week five, we encouraged you to fast one day of the week. And now this week is week six. And in week six, we uh, have intentionally even said that these are progressively have gotten harder. Uh, and this week is the ultimate week, if you will. By the ultimate week, I say, uh, by the ultimate week, it's not only Holy Week, but it's a week that we're going to set aside three days of prayer and fasting. And what I mean by that is I want to encourage you, exhort you, challenge you, love you into participating by starting your fast on Monday night. Pick a time, okay? Typically after dinner, you don't have to eat dinner, but start Monday night and we're going to go all the way until Thursday and we're going to break fast on Thursday evening over dinner. Okay. However you want to participate, however you want to break that fast, that is up to you. A few words of encouragement. This last week will be, will be difficult. And especially if you've never done a three day fast and especially if you decide to eat a very large meal before going into these three days of fasting, don't do that, okay? You're going to be miserable if you do that. Don't break it with a really crazy Thank you, and don't break it with a crazy meal. Uh, <laughs> and so for me personally, I'm praying, I'm truly just asking the Lord that this week will be a week where you encounter the transforming, tangible presence of God because your physical hunger will make you so aware of your spiritual hunger for God that you will cry out to him. Yes, and trust me, yes. if you participate in three days of prayer and fasting, at some point you are going to cry out to God. That's right. Yeah. That's you right. will. Just the truth. And so here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that when you do, that God would sovereignly show up Yes. And meet you and satisfy you in that crying out. Even if it is in your car and you're like, I'm so hungry, God. <laughs> that he would show up in that moment and that he would satisfy this soul hunger that, right. that, that, you, that is so much deeper than just the physical hunger. And here's the deal. We're doing this as a community. So if you are feeling weak, yeah. if you're saying, man, I'm about to eat something and I, I need some help, you can call any one of us at any right. given point yeah. and we yeah. will encourage you, motivate you, challenge you and exhort you and love you into continue to participate. Okay. It's right. usually in the form of a gift. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You got this. All right. So if you have any questions, ask your questions over the meal and we can and we can talk about it whenever we go into the meal. So as not to take some time away from what we are about to enter into. Yes. Awesome. Yes. awesome. Yes. All right. So lastly, we have come to the end wow. of our series Abide with Zealous Devotion. And what we've been doing is that we've been studying the messages that God has for the seven churches in Revelation chapters two and three. We've stated that our hopes for this season, and uh, w w sorry, we, I, we, I have stated hopes for this season, and I'm not about to stop on the last day of the series. So here's our hope, 
that one, we would abide in a way that allows us to hear the voice of the Lord and take the next step of obedience. And two, that we engage in a way that deepens our relationship with God, resulting in a zealous devotion to him and his kingdom. Now, I said this at the beginning and I will restate it at the end. I believe that when we heed what the Lord is calling us into in the season, that the Lord will show up to continue to transform us into kindling the fire of our love and adoration for him. And so my prayer has been, oh Lord, that my desire, my desire is that we may be a people whose love for God increases yes. and glows red hot yes. in the season. Yes. And then that will carry over into the summer yes. as we enter into the summer. Wow. And so who wrote Revelation and why did we and are we studying the churches? Ready? Revelation was written by John, who was known as the beloved because he was the disciple, as he writes in his own gospel, that rested on Jesus's chest. Uh, and, And so that's why he called himself the beloved. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And while in prison on the island of Patmos, he was put onto prison because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, as we see in Revelation 1, 9. And the reason why we have entered into a time to look at and study the seven churches in Revelation is that I believe that scripture has something to say about where we find ourselves today in this day and in this age and in this culture. John has two motives for writing Revelation. And number and first, John wrote Revelation to remind those who have placed their faith in uh, Jesus of the cosmic or supernatural order that undergirds them in all society. You see, much like today, the people of God were hard pressed to reconcile on one hand this idea that we just exclaimed earlier, the kingdom has come, mm-hmm. Right. And that God is sovereign over sin, Satan, and history and is worthy to be followed and trusted. And yet, on the other hand, the reality that the forces of evil continue to exist, dominate culture, and even flourish, all while believers are being oppressed to varying degrees. And so the question at the forefront of their mind, and I know that this has been the, the, the question at the forefront of your mind, How do or how did the truths of the gospel relate practically and specifically to the difficult cultural, social, political, and economic realities of their day? I'm going to go ahead and insert here that in 2024, we're going to see uh, a very difficult year. If you remember what 2020, uh, yeah, what 2020 was like. It was difficult. 2019 was contentious. Mm -hmm. In 2024, I believe that because of the presidential elections, it's already starting to bubble up and just get ready. Uh, We're we're going to experience, we're going to have at the forefront of our minds the same question. How do the truths of the gospel Mm -hmm. practically and specifically relate Mm -hmm. to the political realities of our day? Mm -hmm. And we're going to get ready for 2024. Trust me. So second, John wrote Revelation to encourage believers to persevere and not give in to the siren or, or, or I explained this beautiful but deceptive and then maybe even loud call of idolatry. Yeah. John is writing, as mm-hmm. uh, Lauren mentioned, as a pastor 
and also a prisoner to not give in to idolatry, but see that Jesus is the lamb that was slain through whom the world was created and will be consummated into whom all glory, honor and power belongs. This Jesus then is in and among the churches and he's getting intimately familiar with their love and their actions. And John makes it clear throughout that no one else is worthy to take that place. Mm, That's right. So let's look at our journey. We've been studying each city and the various elements they were known for and how Jesus intimately enters into their cultural context Mm. and addresses each church. We started in Patmos and we went to Ephesus, then Smyrna, then Pergamum, then Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. And so today we find ourselves in the last church of of Revelation uh, chapter three, and that is Laodicea. So let's jump in. I'm so excited about this one, actually. Laodicea as a city was rich. It was a city that contained two major roadways into it to get further into the east. One road came from Ephesus and the other road came from Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And these roads would lead many into the city of Laodicea. And just like this entire region and like we learned uh, about Philadelphia last week, Laodicea also experienced the same devastating earthquake as Philadelphia. It was so rich though and and materially affluent that when the major earthquake hit 20 to 30 years before this letter in Revelation reaches them, they uh, Rome reached out and they said, we want to send you uh, resources so that you can rebuild. And Laodicea being prideful and, and uh, in their uh, material wealth, they said, we don't need it. We got this. And so they began to rebuild their city with their own resources, which made them prideful in their self-sufficiency. Wow. We're a city. We can, we got this. We can do this. Their economic prosperity, if you were asking, came from gold that established the city as a banking center. They, their economic prosperity also came uh, medically in medicine, but particularly uh, they were known to have this eye ointment that was said to pure, weak eyes that were on their way to blindness. And then they also, they had glossy sheep's wool uh, for their clothing where the sheep would eat the the fertile soil that was in Laodicea and it would produce glossy wool. And and one particular um, uh, commentator said that their wool was predominantly black. So if you ask me, they were the best dressed city in the entire region. (laughs) So additionally, Laodicea was also known for its lukewarm water. Now, I want to show this to you. Laodicea is here. Here, Let me do this so that we can all see it. Here's Laodicea. And so to the north of Laodicea was uh, Hierapolis, which was known as a city with hot water. 
therapeutic thermal springs and hot mineral baths due to their natural hot springs that came. And so this water would essentially flow from Hierapolis down to Laodicea. And to the east of, uh, yeah, to the east of Laodicea was Colossae. And Colossae was known for its refreshing cold water that would flow from Colossae to Laodicea. But by the time, whether it was the hot water or the cold water, reached Laodicea, the water was lukewarm or tepid. It would, it would also, on its way, receive some additional minerals. And so the water, uh, when, when you would drink the tap water, if you will, of Laodicea, the water would make one nauseous. And it was known to also be uh, used to, if you were having an upset stomach, you would drink the water and it would cause you to vomit, essentially. Mm. So it is in this city and the church in it that Jesus shows up. And when he shows up, he shows up as strictly as who he is. Mm What I mean by that is that when he shows up to the other cities, he shows up with what he has or what he does. Mm. But in Laodicea, he shows up as who he is. Mm -hmm. Verse 14, to the angel in the church of Laodicea, Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. And so first he shows up as the amen, that just like you say amen at the end of a prayer, he is revealing himself to be the last word. He is the so be it. He is the indeed. He is the divine yes. He is also the faithful and true witness. In other words, uh, he is the true and faithful revelation of the father. He is not a counterfeit, but the exact image of the father that faithfully displays him in uh, perfect tense in perfect tone and in perfect tenor. The NIV says that he is also the ruler of God's creation. Now, all the other major translations would say that uh, he is the beginning or the originator of God's creation. That's because the word for ruler uh, or uh, Yeah, the word for ruler or beginning or originator is used by John is is the word arche, okay, which does mean beginning, but that's not just that he was the first in the sequence, but that he was also the originator of the sequence. He's the archetype of the sequence, thereby making Jesus the ruler of all of God's creation. Now, I want to point you here to uh, Colossians. Uh, there is a hymn that is dedicated to describing who Jesus is. And I want you to draw your attention to it because the Laodiceans would have been familiar with this hymn as Paul instructs the church in Colossae to read his letter to the Laodiceans. And so here's this hymn, Colossians 1.15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things at heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. 
all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This was the Laodicean understanding of who Jesus is. And so this was a rich understanding that they had of Jesus. Yet the indictment that Jesus has for the church is revelation beginning in verse 15 and 16. He says this, he says, I know your deeds that you are neither hot or cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So essentially the Laodiceans, what, what, uh, the, the indictment that Jesus had was a mild approval, not zeal for Jesus. So when we talk about abiding with zealous devotion, scripture is actually not asking us to be uh, fanatical because fanaticism is unreasoned, unintelligent wholeheartedness. Instead, Jesus calls his followers to be reasoned, uh, uh, a reason by living their life as a living sacrifice because it calls it the reasonable act of service. And so what is the cause of the church and laity to say is lukewarmness? Everybody say compromise. 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 You see, they were growing apathetic and complacent with culture in a city that led them down a false belief. You see, at, while they were singing Colossians chapter 1, uh, 15 through 20, and this long uh, description of who Jesus is, they were compromising in their lives with Jesus. They were self-sufficient and prideful. They were trusting in their wealth and in their security. Verse 17, Jesus says, you say, Laodicea, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But what you do not realize is that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So look at this. When Jesus says they are poor, blind, and naked, he's calling out their self-sufficiency. They weren't physically poor. They had gold. They weren't blind. They were known to produce medical-grade eye salve to heal failing eyes. And they definitely weren't naked, for they produced the best glossy clothing in all the region. The Laodiceans grew warm in their devotion to Jesus. And if you stop and consider what Jesus is saying, he is saying their lukewarmness causes Jesus to get sick. He says, I'm about to spit you or uh, other translations would say vomit you out of my mouth. That's a strong word. And I don't know about you, but that's a gross word. And I never want to hear Jesus say that about my life. And yet when Jesus shows them that they are not actually rich and don't have everything they need, 
I just want to point out here that he does it with so much compassion. You can't really see this in the English, but in Greek, Jesus ends each word in a way that communicates compassion. And in that compassion, he says, let me give you some counsel. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. And so I want to draw your attention to two phrases here. And the two phrases are from me and I love. What does he say? He says, buy from me and those whom I love. You see, buying from Jesus means gold that will never tarnish or disintegrate, clothes that will never wear out, and salve that will actually heal. And he's entreating them to get close. Why? Because he loves them. And this love that he uses is the word, the, the word phileo, not agape, but phileo, which is an affectionate love. It's a love that feels. And so again, here's Jesus' compassion on display to the people that were making him sick. He invites them to buy from him and he feels love for them. Do you see that? Now, Let's reconsider what is arguably the second most well-known passage in all of Scripture. Mm. Revelation 3.20. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, we learned last week that... Uh, Jesus placed an open door in front of Philadelphia that no one can shut. See, I believe that Lauren boldly, brilliantly, and I wish she was in here so she can hear this, and with conviction (laughs) helped us see that this door was a door of salvation and a door of mission. It was a door of opportunity, opportunity for salvation and an opportunity unto mission. And yet here's another door. But this door is not the same door as Philadelphia. It isn't a door that Jesus places in front of us, but a door that we place in front of Jesus, that Jesus is knocking on. Here I am, he's saying. I'm standing here. And if you open it, I will come in and I will eat with you and you will eat with me. You see what this door is, is not the door of opportunity, but it's the door of intimacy. Can you see Jesus's love and compassion for people that are about to make him sick? See, he wants to come in and eat with them. And in the time that Revelation was written, eating together meant a covenant community was forming and gathering. It meant getting to know one another in a way that went beyond just casual acquaintance. 
Jesus desires the, the, the Laodiceans, but it is up to them to hear his knock and to open the door to him. Now, why do I say that this is arguably the second most well-known passage in scripture in all of the Bible? Because it is also typically used at the end of the sermon that starts with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And, they, and, and, and we expound on that and we share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. And we end that time with Revelation 3.20. Here I am, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And we invite people to come to know Jesus. And I'm not dogging it. I'm not knocking it. That's awesome. But this passage is not primarily for unbelievers. He is speaking to the church in Laodicea. Look at the context. It's a passage to the church. He is speaking to us. He is speaking to the Laodiceans. He is not only speaking to the Laodiceans, but he is speaking to all the churches in history that have come come before us. All the churches within Dallas and and, uh, in all the world that uh, that are here today and all the churches that will come after us. And he is, and this invitation to intimacy is there. More on this in a minute. But here's Jesus's promise if Laodicea repents. Verse 21. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. You see, Jesus not only comes in through the door to sit at your table, but he elevates those who let him in to sit with him on his throne that was given to him by his father. You invite him into your house, he invites you to his throne. That's his promise. If you are victorious, if you keep me here, if you remain in me, if you abide with me in zealous devotion, if you eat with me, I will eat with you. I will be with you. But not only will I do that, but I will elevate you to sit with me on my throne at the right hand of the Father is what he's saying. And I don't know about you, but that is great news. So here's how I want to end our time already. I want to end by raising your awareness of the condition of our own hearts and how this message applies to us. You see, I've intentionally tried to keep this message centered around the Laodiceans so that you would know the information. But right now is a moment to actually stop and consider what this word means for us in this room. Mm -hmm. You see, all of us live in the city of Dallas. Dallas County, I'll say it that way. Cities have as their end goal to be self-sufficient. That's just how they're built. The goal for a city is to have resources, shelter, protection, food, and community to thrive and flourish within its limits. 
And so the very fabric of cities is so that you don't have to, you don't have need of anything and you're able to be autonomous and self-sufficient. If you need something, you go to the grocery store. If you need something to eat, you go to the grocery store that is located in your city. If you need your car to get fixed, you go to the mechanic that is within your city. Used to not always be that way. And although the endeavor is arguably a good and right one, the effects of such an endeavor are such that it produces in us a seeming self-sufficiency that uh, encourages us to accumulate physical wealth and makes us apathetic to our overall wealth and flourishing. It makes us um, uh, that just like the church in Laodicea, we grow uh, lukewarm and, and we compromise. We compromise because we believe now that we are able to do this on our own, in our own strength. And just because we don't have this feeling of lack, because we also live in a rich country and in a rich city, we can fall apathetic to our true desire and our true need for Jesus. You see, remember when we talked about how our primary spiritual battle in this cultural moment is against secularism? Do you remember when we did that with Smyrna? And what we said was that the, 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 the culture of the modern Western world, more, more specifically, the culture of Dallas is closing in. Live in compromise, it says. Live for your comfort. Live your faith privately. Because the goal of secularism is to privatize faith while secularism makes its agenda public, is what we said. You can, in other words, believe in Jesus, but just don't talk about him. Don't make him public. You see, I like to think of secularism as hell's HR department. (laughs) Because what secularism's agenda is, is actually a reverse exorcism. Find where God is and remove God out of there. Drive him out, shut him up. And what the church in Laodicea reveals about us is that our witness of Jesus is at best tepid, lukewarm, and we can no longer carry in us the healing that is symbolic in hot water, nor do we even carry the refreshing that is symbolic in the cold water. Yet we think that we don't have any need for anything else. So like Laodicea, what we do is that we leave Jesus on the outside and think that a belief in him, just like they had a belief in him through Colossians 1.15 through 20, is sufficient to live a zealous life of devotion in and to him. And yet what he does is that he remains in our midst. He walks among, among us as he walked among each church. And just like he calls out the facets of each church that fall short of a satisfied life in him, he's calling out, our lukewarmness 
And what he's doing is that he's inviting us into a relationship that is burning red hot with reliance, dependence, satisfaction, affection, and devotion to him. Now, we've been in abide with zealous devotion for seven weeks. And each week, what we did is that we wrestled and contended with the questions that the spirit, that, 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 that ask really the spirit to help us see Jesus in our midst as we've been challenged with these various churches and the messages that he has for them. And I just want to say that today is no different. You see, today in our time, in our ministry time, here's what I want us to do is I want us to pray fiery prayers for one another so that we would be able to abide with zealous devotion. Pray fiery prayers for one another to abide with zealous devotion. But first we're going to go into a time of communion. You see, whenever he says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock, it's because he is actually there. And so uh, at the end of this series on Palm Sunday, what Jesus is doing is that he is writing in humbly to knock on our door because we have left him out. And here's what I'm going to say. You need him. I need him. We all need him. And what we're going to do is that we're going to end the last three days of these 40 days of of Lent Mm -hmm. to pray and fast for renewal in our lives. Mm -hmm. To let him in. You see, at Oxford, there's a famous painting called, uh, hanging in one of their halls called Light of the World. And Light of the World was painted by William Holman Hunt in the mid-1800s. And what it depicts is Jesus standing at a door that has overgrown vines over the door and and there is no, no doorknob on the outside of this door where Jesus is. The painting was considered by many to be the most important and culturally influential rendering of Christ in its time. And I believe that it has a similar significance today. You see, the vines are growing over the door of intimacy. And Jesus is knocking on a door where the doorknob is found only on the inside. And it is said that this is symbolic of the obstinately shut mind. And so I want to end and invite you to come to communion and invite you to pray fiery prayers by ending the way each message to the churches in Revelation ended. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church.